Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about knowing not to. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Welcome to the show. Hi, Christina. <laughs> Hi. Nice to have you back. Hello. I feel like it's a treat, the episodes we get to spend together now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So here we are, and we're talking about knowing not to, which is an interesting topic. And I'm staring at Chloe because you put it on the spreadsheet. I did put it on the spreadsheet. <laughs> so I think we're all used to conservation decision making as what do I do with this object? Not what do I not do with this object or mm. can I do anything with this object? Mm. And I think there's loads of different reasons why we, we feel we can't or that we physically can't or all of this. So I think it's it's basically conservation decision making, isn't it? With a lean towards minimum intervention. Okay, interesting. Interesting, interesting. Well, I'm, I'm on board, I'm on board. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, mostly I was just curious about why you'd pick the topic, but like that's, mm-hmm. it's a really good point. And it's something that maybe outside of university we don't mm-hmm. actually talk that much mm, about, yeah. um, like outside of training, I should probably phrase it, that we maybe don't actually spend much time talking about. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because not only are we in a situation where we are pressed for time and pressed for money, We're also in a situation where people are really pressured to do the thing. And if you have to prepare an object for display, you've got to prepare the object for display. It's been asked for. And, you know, I'm lucky to work in a museum where there's a conversation, but some people don't work in museums where there's a conversation at all. It's like, we want this object. So I feel like in my museum, it it can be a conversation. I say it can be because obviously... I right so here's the thing we all say that conservatives are people who say no all the time and I really try to be the person that says yes all the time because I don't want to be the stereotype yeah and I know that sounds mm. stupid but also I'm an optimist so I really try to <laughs> I really try to bring it uh, so I really try to be the person who says yes so I think it it's more unfortunate for me when I do have to say no or when the conversation has to be one that turns to look I can do that but the intervention is so huge Mm -hmm. and it would take much longer than we have in the run-up to this exhibition to prep this object essentially Mm -hmm. so that it's it is a dialogue Mm -hmm. and I think it's one that we've kind of had to evolve over time because I think initially there may have been less dialogues and more assumption that anything that's requested is possible, mm-hmm. which is a wonderfully optimistic view of <laughs> my my ability to bend time. <laughs> Do you think because you've tried so hard to be positive and not be that person that says no all the time, do you feel that it you're, it carries more weight when you actually do say no? Do you feel like people respect it more than if you were habitually saying no to stuff? You know, I think that's actually true. I think there is some a greater respect for, okay, there's a reason she is saying, no, we can't. Although it does make it more awkward when you sometimes have to go back on something because you've had to reconsider something. Mm. And that can yeah. that's not necessarily even treatment, something in things like policy, where I think when I when I first started my current job, I, you know, again, I was trying to bring that kind of yes saying into a lot of our policies. And then as time has progressed or things have changed, in some way in the arrangement sometimes I've had to like really revise those policies and be like Mm. actually you know what we can't let schools say 
eat in this one gallery when mm. they bring food along because actually it doesn't get cleaned up enough afterwards and we've had a bit of a pest problem so we're not gonna do that anymore so like so sometimes yeah. it's had to become a negotiation and and that's really heartbreaking to me because i don't want to go back on these things but that's the nature of trying stuff out isn't it and i think it's, I know. if you if we don't try stuff we'll never progress and this is coming from somebody who was really reticent in the touchy-feely episode of I don't want to do touch to oh, yes. I don't like it uh, I'm scared uh, <laughs> yeah but if we don't then if we don't make changes if we don't yeah. try stuff out then we won't know yeah and I, I yeah I suppose that's a good attitude to have like that you are open to trying things mm. and that is good but if you if you're under the pressure to say yes to something and once you've said yes, no takes back, take back seats, you're not allowed yeah. to say no again. No, I think... Not and I, to change I mind, think that's, that's too much pressure. That is probably also my slight kind of... Not fear of... Because when something's like a written policy and it's a document and yes, it says it should be reviewed every two years, it feels so official and it feels really harsh to go back on it and change it. And it, it kind of feels like there's a paper trail of my failure to make this work. Oh, no. <laughs> And I, but that's a personal hang-up. Like, I guess yeah. that that's just in my head. So what is it that's making us feel pressured to, into doing conservation? If there is a pressure, do you feel there's a pressure? Oh, um, so I, I don't feel that personally at the moment. So I, um, as I explained in episode one of this season, I've got a day job doing something completely unrelated to conservation, but I've continued to do bits of freelance conservation, mm. um, most recently for a small local museum that was having a big exhibition and needed a conservator to come in six weeks beforehand and basically do as many objects as possible and yeah. it was a collection of historic scientific equipment and I'm an objects conservator and I've previously worked um, for best part of a year as a project conservator in a science museum as well so it's not stuff I'm unfamiliar with but there were a couple of things there where I said no I can't do this this is beyond my personal ability to do this you need a different type of conservator for this mm -hmm. and in one case you need to get a mount maker in to make a mount because i don't think this can be done mm. at all <laughs> yeah. as a conservation problem we need to turn it into a different kind of problem and they were okay about that and i i think that's a kind of situation where it would have been easy to feel pressurized into it because of the impending exhibition mm. and yeah. also in a way because i wasn't Although these are people I've worked with before a lot and I've got a good relationship with them, I'm not a member of staff. So I think that can also change the dynamic a bit, whether you're a member of staff or a freelancer. You might feel more obliged to try and um, say yes to stuff if you're a freelancer because it's kind of your living on the line. It's your reputation. Mm. If you start saying no to private clients, then it doesn't look good. There was one object that was a an incredibly historically significant microscope. I, I mean, almost as significant as is possible for these things to be. Oh, wow. And um, the mirror underneath was attached by a tube to the main bit of the microscope, but the um, holes where the screws go through to attach it had ripped through over time because the metal was very thin and this thing was 150 years old and so on mm. and i tried various things and in the end had to say to them not only can i not reattach this but i don't think any conservator will be able to reattach this there are just some things that are you, you know short of drilling new holes in this tube mm, yeah. which is completely unacceptable ethically or using some incredibly strong adhesive to fix it permanently i don't think this is a practical problem that can be solved by a conservator you need to get in a mount maker to support this thing in place mm. from below yeah um but it's not a it's not 
something that can be solved as a conservation problem mm. and they were okay about that actually and there, there's there's been another couple of cases where there's been um there was a leg that had come off a tripod and i could see it's not something i could do because it involved it would need to be welded Mm, yeah uh and you know i'm an object conservator and we have quite a broad portfolio of skills and we do a lot of things <laughs> but i don't do welding <laughs> legs back onto things but there are people out there who do do that and in the end actually we found because it had been made by a local instrument making company we actually found somebody who had worked for that company 50 years ago oh wow and had a workshop repairing these instruments and he Basically, he knew these instruments like the back of his hand. He was he was the person who'd made them in the first place. Oh, and he cool. was willing to do the repair. And so, obviously, this wasn't a conservation repair in any kind of sense. Yeah, um, slightly, more, it, slightly more of a restorative kind of measure, but like in yeah, a structural absolutely. way. But I mean, yeah. it, it was nice because we got information from him about how these things were made in the first place and were able to document the whole process anyway and it was also it it worked far better than any kind of crappy adhesive repair i could have done for example so i think that was the kind of case where i, I recognized the limits of what a conservator could do yeah and, and felt comfortable saying no to that yeah it's good to hear that there are you know times when one one can be comfortable to like really mm. make that recommendation i feel like it kind of falls into two camps for me like sometimes it's you're right it is much easier to kind of advise that kind of client that okay you're going to need someone else to do this or here's here's mm. a solution that i can think of but i'm not the person to deliver that solution so that for me that mostly falls into the category of indeed this needs a special mount or something like that where I, that's just not something i can do uh, at least not in my current setup and with my current skill set. That's not to say that I couldn't yeah. gain those skills, but, you know, that's kind of a long-term plan. So s- sometimes it, it is the natural progression of things to just advise that they go to someone else. And it's nice when you can make those connections if you do know that someone else. Not that we always do, because it depends on how broad our networks are and, and you know, where people are, people are in the country and all that stuff, right? So it's a lot of geography as well. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really vital bit of, of being conservators, knowing other conservators and knowing when you can refer people. I don't think we're always great as a profession for, uh, at acknowledging those practicalities and no. those things influence our decision. And I think we like to sort of pretend or at least make out that the decisions we make are the, the absolute optimal ones and the best ones. And, you know, obviously we've done everything we can and so on. But obviously decisions are usually influenced by time money resources skills things like that oh yeah and, and uh, so we do need to recognize quite that frequently you don't do everything that you could have done yeah um, but it feels it feels kind of <laughs> edgy <laughs> admitting that sometimes i think i try to be more transparent about these things but i guess that's because mm. i make an effort to be so you know i i might say that here are kind of the three kinds of options that you could have one is if you have all the money in the universe and you don't mind this taking five years and this one <laughs> is if you if time is of the essence but you also need a good job done and ultimately if none of these things fit then here's another solution that i can think of that would mm-hmm. be stopgap solution needs work please go and write a bid for conservation work like that sort of thing so i always try to present more options to people i guess it's about informing the customer in a way that if this is what you're able to pay then this is the kind of level that we're at and this is the amount that i can do realistically a couple of years ago i was in a job where i was working on material that was less familiar to me that it wasn't that clear cut i I, I didn't feel so confident you know like 
is it is it me or is it the problem? You know, <laughs> is it just that I'm I'm not as good enough? I'm not skilled enough to do this, and someone else could do this in five minutes, and I'm just you know making a complete hash of it. So I've I've certainly been in those situations. What I've been doing, what I've been trying to do more recently is making a conscious effort to write in my documentation the justification for what I've been doing which includes the reasoning behind not doing something yeah and I mean you can see this as kind of covering your ass if you like because I'm kind of conscious that the curator is going to be reviewing this documentation possibly at some point and thinking why didn't she do that bit um, but I'm also conscious that maybe some other conservator is going to be looking at this in 30 or 40 years time and thinking why on earth did she leave this bit unconsolidated or why didn't she repair this or whatever? So I've, I've been consciously making an effort to write my justification in my conservation documentation. So to say this bit was not repaired because there was not enough time available or the lab is not very well equipped and we have very limited resources. So I've chosen this particular adhesive because it's the best out of the ones available rather than something else which would have been better but we can't afford it or whatever Mm. do you see what i mean yeah that's what i do as well i've been trying to be more upfront about that rather than just kind of leaving that stuff unspoken and letting other people kind of wonder why why did she not do this well i think it's the unspoken stuff that can be really kind of harmful in this situation and the more transparency we have in the profession in general the better it will be for everyone because otherwise we're we're sort of just like secretly watching what other people are doing and then going uh oh i hope i'm a bit worried but maybe i'll just try and and pretend that i'm as confident as everyone else seems to be but uh, this is a great point actually and i think if we do try to build into our documentation the kinds of things that we thought of but had to reject yeah. because mm. of all the, some of these reasons like yeah exactly i mean you you can keep that really brief but just mm-hmm. like put in like a line or two about it then i think that would be really helpful I mean, I think if we were to worry too much about that, we probably wouldn't do anything because we've <laughs> all encountered objects where we wished people hadn't done something, where we wish people had done nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, nothing. I mean, that's like, true. Why did you use shellac all over this stuff? <laughs> it's now 100 years later really insoluble. So I, I get that. And, and I, I think there's that real tension, isn't there, between worrying about whether you're doing the right thing, but then thinking, oh, God, I've, I've got to do something. Mm. That's the thing that that uh, really interests me in this topic. That on obviously we are all subject to feeling like we don't have the expertise, and you know we can't possibly have the expertise for everything. Even the specialists don't have the expertise to do everything within that specialism because you know that's not how brains work. Also, it's not mm. possible because we don't live forever. We don't. I was about to say we don't live for not, years. We're not vampires. <laughs> we're not vampires, so we can't become experts in everything. We've said before on the podcast that we don't want things to just be in a box in a store somewhere. Yeah. We can't that's mm. what's the point in it if it's if no one's seeing it, no one can access it. But the thing that interests me is that sometimes if you obviously if you if you've got to conserve something in order to put it on display, you might have to do things that you feel either you're not ready for or the profession isn't ready for, science isn't ready for whatever. And where does that decision happen? At the same time, though, that pushing boundaries is how anything gets, exactly. gets done. Yeah, like, that's true. And I don't mean that in a, oh, this is how things get put on display. Like, that's <laughs> that's not what I mean. I just mean that advances, the stuff that we go to conferences to hear the groundbreaking paper on, wouldn't have happened if no mm. one took that risk. So yeah. 
yeah. fundamentally we do need to take risks because otherwise what is the point then exactly, we're all just sitting here yeah. with our animal glue like <laughs> for thousands of years and never never ever trying anything else and like there's a time and a place for animal glue but uh, like it's yeah, yeah I, there needs to be a certain amount of innovation as well and sometimes it might be that it works for really specific things but not everything mm-hmm. so I have two examples of this and you'll have to your memories will have to help me on this because I can't remember the details of one of them <laughs> okay because <laughs> that's how I do things partially remembered facts so the first example is my in my own museum we hang large painted textiles not to yeah. give too many details obviously everyone already knows where I work yeah so there are conservation Uh, methods essentially that have happened in the past that are highly interventive and that's because they were done at a time when there was both time and the practice to do highly interventive things and they are the things that are on display and they go out uh, you know they've they've been out like five times since they were conserved on a yearly rotation and Mm. people have seen hundreds of people have seen them they've been accessible they're safe they still exist but in the future, there may be ways that would be better. There may be ways that would be better for them to be conserved and retain various things that may, they may not retain now yeah, for whatever reason. I feel like we can't obsess about that. Exactly. That's what I mean. The benefit of them being on display is that they're, no, they're not rolled up in a store somewhere and haven't yeah. been for 30 years. They've been usable for 30 years. Yeah. My other example... Uh, is the one I'll need help reminding. If I say the paintings that were severely flood damaged in Venice. Yes. Florence. Uh, Florence. Florence, yes. They, and they were wrapped and frozen for 15 years because no one could do anything about them. Oh, was it? I don't know. No, I think I might be thinking of something else. Right. Just making it up, aren't you? I've just... Um, <laughs> my brain... If anyone could see inside my brain, they'd be horrified to be perfectly honest <laughs> it's just a sea of half remembered bits of information that float up every so often and then disappear it's insane there's in no mind palace flood. here in my internal <laughs> yeah remembering stuff is just essentially getting one of those giant nets like what will come up now let's see oh i would love to illustrate the inside of oh, your head <laughs> god it's awful yeah my oh, yeah. point my point is Nothing could be done with them. They were totally wrecked. Instead of throwing them away, though, which would potentially have been a decision that many museums would take, they were wrapped and they were frozen for a number of years. After that time, methods and expertise had been developed to the point that they can be, they could be conserved, and they were then conserved and they were put on display. So it was the mm. choosing not to do something, choosing to essentially hoard wrecked objects... <laughs> for numbers of years actually saved those objects and that really that really interests me because obviously it will make a difference how important the object is but that's the thing that interests me of that that's the that's the fear isn't it of we can't do anything about this but what about in 20 years Um, i have so many thought i have so many feelings about this i know I mean, that reminds me of archaeologists reburying stuff. Uh, And I think that's a perfectly reasonable response, actually, though, to recognise the limits of what we can do now, but hope that a technological solution is going to come along in future. Well, actually, it sounds like people's attitude towards climate change as well, kind of pinning our hopes on some great technological (laughs) revolution that's going to save us all rather than changing human behaviour. But anyway, that's all by the by. I have so many feelings about this because I feel like not everyone's in the position to just go, let's just keep things frozen for ages or the resource implication of just 
waiting it out and seeing if something comes along that means that we can absolutely look after this thing that's it's a huge amount of resources to tie up yes it it, uh, that's a big risk and obviously with as you say with some things because of their perceived value Mm -hmm. then that might be a trade-off that's worth doing but uh here we could talk about values for a bit i i also i'm not sure that you are doing nothing because you're freezing them which is preserving them and so you are doing something and how is this any different from keeping something waterlogged well no i mean it's not really (laughs) that's true it isn't different different... it is managing change which is what conservation is all about (laughs) it is it is exactly and preserving value which is also what conservation is all about so yeah i suppose the difference being is that you're the difference being is that you're essentially uh, crossing your fingers and hoping that, that something will come around yeah. if something is badly conserved on display and we see something that's badly conserved on display it's still on display yeah and but sometimes that can be a whole discussion point or a, a way of interpreting mm-hmm. something you know that yeah. well this is how we used to do things and it's not how we yeah. do things now yeah. so that can be a that can be a whole thing actually like that's not necessarily something where you have to hunt down a conservator and go oh my god please undo this fix it yeah because actually it can be part of object history Mm -hmm. yeah you know yeah so also i i kind of take issue with badly conserved in that no one sets out to conserve things badly no no but we have very strong opinions about things that have been conserved in the past in ways that we would yeah with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of better ceramic staples for example (laughs) but i mean these these people weren't going i'm going to use the most solution i can i'm going to choose something that's <laughs> deliberately going to cause problems for people 30 yeah, no. years in the future and i'm going this to you know, make this as ugly and destructive as possible i mean people don't do that they're just like i need to fix this what can i and do I'm true. and i mean if we're going to be honest like even the the ones that get a lot of media attention and we all laugh at because it's a botched restoration or whatever even yeah. even those set out with good intentions yes uh, so the end result might not have been desirable but I don't think at any point anyone went I'm going to make this ugly because that's not really the point that no. they they did it from a place of love and it might not have been well informed but you know yeah so I think the point still stands that no one sets out to do it badly having said that I mean you said they set, they they all have good intentions and as we know the road to hell is paved with good intentions <laughs> and I think if if you go too far down that road then it's a slippery slope to believing that actually this is all relative. And as long as you mean well, and as long as you do the best that you personally can, then that's okay. And actually, in a wider context, that's not okay. And some conservation treatments are objectively better than others, I would say. So, you know, that that Spanish woman who <laughs> repainted... Yeah, yeah, you know the one I mean. Yeah. <laughs> the sort of uh, hairy monkey Jesus. Um, <laughs> That was a terrible restoration and she did it from a place of love and because she was frustrated that nobody else was looking after this painting in her church. Yeah. Um, And she did the best that she personally could do. But the reason it was so mocked is because it wasn't very good in some ways and somebody could have done better. So I think that's, that's, yes, we do the best that we can and we have good intentions, but I think we also need to retain that perspective of could oh, no, somebody absolutely. else do better? <laughs> you absolutely. Know, is this... but I think, right, so here's an interesting thing that I kind of wanted to bring up, which was the kind of difference between, because we're talking about knowing not to, you know, when I, it's in our professional standards and code of ethics for icon that at a certain point you kind of need to know when to look for help elsewhere. Like yeah. you need to know when to, mm-hmm. when it's not for you to do. But I also think that there's, 
I'm interested in the fork in the road that's asking for help or thinking, well, there's someone else out there who would do a better job than me mm. versus I'm going to try to better myself, gain new skills, try this, mm. even though it's slightly outside my comfort zone yes. and become a better conservator. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think there's a really valid thing to to be be on a mission to become better yeah and not do the same treatment the rest of your life unless mm -hmm. that's what you really want to do mm -hmm. so sometimes you can seek out new skills and i think there's a real danger that people might in fact rather make a kind of clear-headed decision that actually i think this would be better off with another conservator instead they fall into self-doubt and imposter syndrome and go well there's always going to be a better conservator so there's no point in me even trying yeah if i open yeah. the doors to thinking oh, i shouldn't do this because somebody else could do it better i just because that, that's poison that's a, that's a spiral <laughs> yeah i think i'm probably quite unusual in being a conservator who's not a perfectionist i'm, I'm not either uh, a lot of oh good okay hello i'm an improver <laughs> but a lot of conservators are very conscientious people who are striving after perfection yes but i personally really like that saying of don't let perfection be the enemy of good enough and i think it's very easy to sort of lose sight of, okay, I might not do the absolute best job that anybody in the world could do, but I'm competent. I know what I'm doing. I've made a good ethical assessment of this situation. The job I'm going to do is good enough. And so it's okay to do it. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? No, absolutely. And I'm with you on that. And that, that's kind of what I wanted to explore is that, you know, you, you don't have to be the world expert at something to do it. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be... You know, you don't have to be the gold medalist of, in <laughs> yeah. you know, in painting to actually in paint something. Like, it's okay. And the whole point is that we start with low skills and gain more skills. Like, we refine ourselves the more we do something. So, yeah, the first time you try a treatment, it might not be great. It might not be the optimum look. But that's the whole point of starting to try something and mm -hmm. trying to refine yourself. Like, it's, uh, yeah, I guess I just really want people to feel confident enough to be able to try something new and to try something again even though the first time it might not have worked out to perfection i think there's something to be said for just striving to be mm. better at something rather than going there's no point because there's always a better ceramics conservator out there or someone's always going to be better at this particular type of panel painting well <laughs> it was, it's not about that <laughs> well and even if that's true they're not the ones doing this treatment right now you are yeah and you're there because somebody has decided that you are competent to do this that you you are good enough yeah and so it's okay yeah exactly <laughs> I, I i really like that idea jenny i agree so i think one of the things we've been talking about quite a lot is uncertainty about things uncertainty about skills am i good enough mm. um not really knowing whether the treatments we're doing are going to be bettered in the future that sort of thing and um that made me think this episode's about knowing not to but we could also kind of think about the ways in which we don't know things in conservation about not knowing as well as knowing not to mm -hmm. um and so i um a couple of weeks ago went and had tea with jonathan ashley smith um who's previously been interviewed on the podcast um, to talk to him about some of these things and when I caught up with him he was talking about a book that he's in the process of writing which is about uncertainty in conservation. 
well, most recently when I went to the IIC Congress in Turin, people from Tabor and Francis Publishers said, have you got any books in mind? And I said, well, now you, you know, twist my arm, I could probably write one on uncertainty. Mm. And then I went to the Getty Conservation Institute for three months of this year. During that time, I wrote the book proposal, and eventually it was accepted. And I am really very, very slowly <laughs> beginning so. to write. So it's, it's uncertainty about all sorts of things. So about it, the language we use, you know, starting with what is heritage. Okay. <laughs> um, and when a conservator says, I conserved this object, what do they mean? Uh, but then there's a lot of science in the area of conservation that uses numbers, and there are a lot of occasions when numbers are far too precise and specific mm -hmm. to be able to deal with things. So they seem very certain, but in fact they're way away from what you might call the real world or the real truth. And then you get from that into values, which again, there are lots of mm -hmm. different ways of, we don't know what other people mean when they say value, and we don't know whether that value reflects anything real or whether it really is just what someone's opinion. Yeah. And then you get into risk, which combines both numbers and ideas about value, and yet can come up with some incredibly precise numbers. The, the Waller method is three, four places of decimals right. <laughs> assessing the magnitude of risk, which again makes you think that if you've got two close together numbers and one of them is uh, different to the other one, you think, oh, they're different rather than, oh, these two are very close together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, I suppose one of the problems is that we don't have enough numbers full stop to mm. be able to see that actually they're all close together. So yeah. if yeah. those two are the only two yeah. you have, then yeah. um, then you can't see that they're part of a bigger pattern of numbers yeah. that are all clustered around. When I was at the Getty, I was trying to get them to talk a bit about... Uh, the, they've written papers about epidemiology and their, yeah. their whole background is about epidemiology. And my view is that we'll never have enough information, at least the way we collect information on objects and environments ever to use epidemiology yeah and even when we do we'll still have something that's very probable you know if we had huge amounts of information it'd be very probabilistic anyway and still room for argument <laughs> yes so do you think we know what we don't know in conservation yeah. yet the sort of no no yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I recently, I wrote, I wrote something for the Getty, went in their perspectives, in which I said I didn't think there were unknown unknowns, but obviously mm. by the very fact that they're unknown, you, yeah. <laughs> you don't know. But I mean, I, I think the relatively few known unknowns in the sense that we know that they are a problem, we know that if we had a bit more information, we'd be near, more nearly right than we currently are. And, and all the things that get discovered, you don't get, there are no world-shattering reversals of um, uh, beliefs or thoughts in conservation. Well, <laughs> so you think we're um, converging and, and sort of refining our knowledge, really, I, I rather than so. yeah, yeah, looking yeah. for a complete yeah. paradigm shift somewhere yeah. else. Ah, so that brings us to not doing <laughs> things. Thank you.
what do you think are the justifications that people use then for not well i know that again it's, it's uh, the the conversation appears in um the paper uh, losing the edge mm-hmm. where the metalwork conservator said to me well you know we don't do banging out dents anymore ethics gets in the way and you think what could be unethical about <laughs> banging out a dent you know the only thing you know unless it was a historic yes. dent connected with some you know it, it, it's likely to spoil the beauty of the object yeah and I think as a justification that rather hides the fact that actually there are things we do so we I mean if, yeah. if you were to take that to its logical conclusion you would do mm. nothing to an yeah. object for yeah. ethical reasons and somewhere we've all kind of collectively drawn this line where we say oh well, it's okay to do this stuff but it's not yeah, okay to do true. that stuff this is too far mm. um, and I don't think we're necessarily that clear about where that line is or no. why it's okay to do X yeah. and not Y but there's also a paper by um, Nicola Gentle a textile conservator and she was t- talking about her long career in conservation and I think how things have changed. And there she said, um, well, we had um, various stages, you know, technology changes, but then ethics came along and changed everything. We said, as if, A, ethics was something that suddenly everyone had discovered, I would guess, in about the 80s, something yeah. like that. And that did have an effect on getting on with stuff, which, uh, from my observation of what was going on at the V&A, there wasn't this sudden realisation, oh, we've mm-hmm. been doing far too much. Um, and some people continue to do what these days would be considered to be too much. Yes. <laughs> and some people never started. But uh, at the time, one thing that wasn't short was for skills, so you knew that it was to do with some external influence making mm. people's ideas of what they should attempt to change I would have said it was to do with the pressure of work you know, priorities Um, and the sort of people who wanted lots of exhibitions and lots of things to travel the one that comes to mind is the director Mark Jones Um, he would constantly say well you don't need to do it, you know, what's wrong with that it's perfectly good, I don't mind it being exhibited like that so thinking about it um, this whole idea of um, deciding not to do something that you could. I think mm. we tend to talk about conservation as if for every object there's some kind of platonic treatment out there, yeah. which is the <laughs> ideal treatment, and you either kind of hit that target mm. or you don't. But actually, of course, that's not true at all. No. There's there's a whole kind of spectrum of interventions you could carry out from yeah. nothing at all to... Yeah complete destructive restoration and most people just sort of pick somewhere along that line depending on a variety of factors um yeah. i'm not quite sure where i'm going no with i don't know but i think the target you know, what am i going to do mm. well i mean i wrote down a note for here was um who asked you to do it you have to be asked to do it by somebody I think totally gone are the days when conservators could just wander through the stores and museums going, oh, that's a nice one, I'll do that. Did those days exist? (laughs) They did exist, yeah. All right. (laughs) Anyway, so you've got to find out, you've got to have someone ask you to do it. And then I think that the general advice given by 
Barbara Applebaum in her book mm. on conservation methodology is good in the sense that you have a look at it, you work out what the history of how it's got to where it is mm -hmm. now, decide if any of the earlier stages have a story that's worth bringing out. Mm. Um, and then you have to then say, well, that's an ideal state in the sense that's the state I want to get it to. Is that possible? And then that's the point where you suddenly think, well, it might be possible, but I don't have the time, I don't have the money, yeah. and I don't have the skill. Mm. So I'm interested in what you were saying about this, this idyllic vision of conservators sort of wafting gaily through yeah. the stocks, finding yeah. objects that they quite fancy working mm. on, because a lot of conservators very much enjoy the practical work. Yeah. And I think you can find yourself in a position where you do actually do more to an object yeah. either just because you can mm. and, and or just because you're enjoying it yeah. um, and sometimes it becomes a personal challenge or I wonder if I can mm. match this more yeah. than I need to do you know from the joy of being able to exercise your own skills mm. I yeah. suppose yeah. and I, I wonder if that takes us sometimes yeah I mean I know well, I remember um I worked in the metalwork section at the V&A, and I remember the head curator from the metalwork curatorial department coming through and seeing work that someone was doing, and he said, well, why are you cleaning that? Mm. And because it's dirty, but, you know, but, but it might have, I don't know when, but it might have useful information. It's not the bit that's going to be on display. Yeah. I don't think you need to do it. So that was an instance of that sort where someone just thought, this is nice, I want to clean this, it'll make it look really wonderful. <laughs> but mm. it might have been damaging as far as information was concerned, and it was unnecessary as far as the priorities of work were concerned. So do you think we ought to start, in fact, from a presumption that we're going to do nothing to objects unless there's a compelling reason to do something? Well, at the moment, I mean, I'm part of the icon ethics task and finish group right. and one way or another we've decided that the first thing that is the first principle is the first thing you should think about is is this really necessary or do I actually need to do anything mm -hmm. that's the first principle so the answer to that is yes or no and you then follow that chain mm -hmm. <laughs> onwards uh, and therefore doing something and not doing something are of equal importance as far as that is concerned it's just a decision yes for whatever reason i don't think i'm going to do anything and for some reason i do think i'm going to do something and once you've decided to do it then you have a number of uh, chains of thought about how much am i going to do uh, where am i going to stop so am i cleaning going to clean this so that it matches all the other tat in the in this historic house <laughs> or am i uh, going to clean it so it shines like a uh, you know yes glowing icon of cleanliness in the middle of all this tat um, and mostly you know people don't want things to look brand new and therefore there is the unbelievably subtle degrees of partial cleaning yes <laughs> which it, 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 uh, there is no science behind them at all as far as I can tell it's, it's a whim and a, and a skill and a fear of people like Artwatch coming <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right, yeah. um, complaining about you in the newspapers as well mm, for over-cleaning yeah. and mm. ruining things. Um, because I don't think, I mean, again, I don't think Artwatch says, I'd rather they didn't do anything. No. <laughs> I think they just say, I'd rather they did what I would, 
<laughs> like to see done. Well, I mean, that, that is one of the things, actually, your point about the part, degrees of partial cleaning is that yeah. conservation is, in fact, hugely mm. subjective. Yeah. Um, and so um, you'll, you'll get as many different answers to how far should I go as there are conservators, yeah. Yeah. I think. Well, that's, that's a, a um, not something that probably isn't true that I always say about ethics and conservation is that you probably wouldn't ever get two conservators to agree on what mm. is the ethical approach to this particular thing. And I think there is, I mean, it's a good thing, there's a lot of um, uh, diversity, but at the same time it's rather sad that then people get so um, determined that their view is right and therefore the other people's view must be wrong, mm. rather than just saying, oh, we don't have the time, we don't have the money, we don't have the skills, let's not do it that way this time. Yeah. And often there is an upper time. Yeah. So it just might not be you, but it might be somebody else yeah. in 30 years' time. You just made me think, in fact, we talk about doing nothing, but mm. very few objects genuinely do have nothing yeah. done to them in that there's usually some sort of basic preventive yeah. care, in fact. Uh, we mm. don't just abandon them to their fate no. completely. We do make some effort to care for them. Yeah, I mean, given that, I just don't know whether you can the only ethical arguments I could think of were if you want to bring money into ethics then spending far too long on a job in some people's view might be unethical Mm. Um, and if you want to bring sustainability in which obviously is the new we really must do something and we mustn't do some things it's becoming an ethical issue and therefore if you say well the only way I can do this is to use this solvent you have to decide whether you're going to argue about the fact that this particular one is a you know, is destroying the ozone layer or whatever. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to be, you, you started off with the idea that not everything need. Very rarely does anything need doing. Yes. Now. Um, so that's so one reason for not doing anything is to give yourself time to think. The second is that you might think that the time you take to research is actually suddenly becomes the only thing you do or, or think about it. I mean, again, going back to how we treat students, we say what we want you to do is, this is your object, do some research around the history and whatever of this object, bringing, I think, an excessive stress on this is what you're going to do in the rest of your life is spend a yes. lot of time researching. It's certainly a shock when I got my first job. <laughs> So we've got from, we've decided to do something, therefore we need to make sure we've got time. Then we have to decide that there isn't something more urgent, and that would be difficult, given what we've just said about nothing's that urgent in conservation, it'd be difficult to say what push the urgency. And mostly, again, in institutions, that is, somebody wants it for some purpose yeah. now. Yes, um, we were talking just before I started recording about how actually in practice very few objects do require yeah. urgent treatment. That's right. Now, there's there's rarely a compelling reason why you have to do a treatment now rather than I mean, yeah. defer it until later. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends whether you call it preventive or interventive, but I mean, yes. <laughs> post, post-flood or something mm. like that. There are times when you have to do yeah, something. Yeah, salvage yeah. and, yeah. yeah. And I guess a few materials that are so unstable yeah. that they can't wait for another year yeah, because yeah. there won't be anything left, very severely corroding metals, in yeah. fact, or 
plastics that are imploding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, even then, I mean, I think most of those could last uh, you know, a couple of months. I have no idea. I don't know if anybody's ever bothered to gather that data, actually, about how long you can leave things before it really does yeah. reach the point of no return. Um, I suppose that kind of comes back to then why not just treat them then? Why would you yeah, wait? Wait. The difficulty in that, that case is likely to be shortage of money. Yes. <laughs> and they might have to choose between treatment and research. Okay, so that's, that's obviously quite an important reason, in yeah. fact, for not yeah. doing things. It's, yeah. it's usually resources of some sort, whether it's money or time yeah. or skilled people. Mm. I've certainly been in museums where there are these sort of Cinderella collections that are always being pushed to the bottom yeah, of the pile. Right, yeah. And it's got nothing to do with need and everything to do with priority. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Actually. Yeah, so a bit, but within, I mean, yes, within an organisation, I don't think the Conservatives will ever be in a position to push that this is a priority. I mean, I suppose the idea of prioritising like that, of course, is not saying, actually, I've decided not to treat these objects. It is saying, all other things being equal, I would treat these objects, but it's not the same as the decision not to treat. No, I I think... I think where I think I'm wandering around saying there are very few times you would actually decide not to do anything. When I was starting to write, re, when I was starting again to write about ethics, I thought, well, I can't actually think of anything that, in some circumstances, wouldn't be allowable. You know, mm. there's nothing actually bad, so it becomes a personal choice, mm. uh, and and therefore. It's very difficult to come up with a robust ethical argument for not doing anything, because you're not going to, you know, in your own, if you set up your ethical framework right, you can't do whatever you do can't be wrong. I suppose it's just contingent on other things, isn't it? Then yeah. it becomes um, it becomes a matter of context. So it might yeah. be wrong to do nothing. Well, either way, I mean, again, cutting across our argument, the other thing, the idea is it could be wrong to do nothing, and one of the words I've been toying with is this word respect, which is that people say, oh, you've got to respect the objects, or you've got to respect the people to make who made these objects, or, you know, mm. and you think, well, is it respectful not to make this object as pretty and as informative as it could be? <laughs> Uh, just by leaving it there, is it respectful to have a, a, a computer interactive display showing what the object could be like if someone restored it, mm. and then leave this sad thing <laughs> neglected? I don't think that shows respect. I suppose if you're looking at it ethically, you, you need to consider the kind of counterfactual situation to doing nothing, which is mm. what would happen if I did nothing. Is it that the object won't survive? Or is it just that the object won't look pretty, yeah. as you said? Uh, well, or is it that the object won't function? Yeah. Um, well, if we do nothing, yeah, I mean... I wonder if there's a hierarchy there, though, in that most people would feel it's wrong to do nothing if the alternative is that the object disintegrates completely, yeah. whereas it's only a bit wrong to do nothing if a working object isn't working. working yeah. And maybe it doesn't matter that much if an 
object doesn't look nice. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, that again depends on the. That's uh, very contextual because if so, take the big schemes that I was involved with, like the British galleries, mm. uh, refurbishment. You've got thousands of objects. And you have to say, I am going to work on this one, but I'm only going to work on it to this extent because there's no point. A, there's no point in making it bright and shiny when it's meant to look as if it's, uh, well, 17th century in its context. Mm. Um, along with other things that I really can't do much with. I can't. Oh, I could make all the furniture look bright and spanking new but then that would be an awful lot of work and people would say that I've done something to the original I suppose it comes down to values as well yeah. in that is the value of this object in its appearance as it might be with the painting so you might be more tolerant of making it look nice than yeah. you are of an archaeological ceramic where nobody mm. really cares if it's yeah. got big holes in the sides for mm. example or is the value in its function as a dynamic working object or is the value just that it's survival because it's so rare and <laughs> yeah. um, or is it the scientific information yeah. that it can give us yeah. so 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 going back to the British galleries so the reason they were chosen for the galleries is to be on display and therefore mm. mostly they had to function as display objects so a certain amount of work mm. was necessary whereas an equal number of objects were kept in store not deteriorating or deteriorating yes and not functioning, if only because people weren't looking at them. You know, yes. If the function is to be looked at or to be enjoyed, you're denying people that by putting them in store. To go back to the skills yeah. gap, if you like, that might lead to you feeling you can't do a treatment, do you think that's a good reason for not doing a treatment? Yeah, no, well, it's a, it is the key reason for mm. not doing a treatment if you... Don't think it's sufficiently transferable from something else you've yeah. done. Um, the difficulty, obviously, is if everybody says, "Oh, I can't do that." Exactly. <laughs> that's that's what I was thinking. Is that the buck has to stop somewhere? Yeah. And there may well be situations where going into something blindly is yeah. better than not doing anything at all. Yeah. Um, but how do you make that? Call as a conservator. Yeah, but I don't know. The, the thing that abuses me that when I was my early career in conservation, all the conservator restorers talked about mistakes I have made. Yeah. <laughs> but when I've been more recently researching the idea of skills, the number of people that said to me, "Well, you've got to be prepared to make mistakes." Yes. And you have to decide on what you're going to make those mistakes. You know, perhaps you don't start with something that's incredibly um, rare or expensive. And and if you are cautious, then you might be able to turn back before it's really too late. I think, I mean, as a profession, I, I, I feel that we're quite intolerant of risk mm, well, and I, I, uncertainty yeah, yeah. in a way that other risky professions have had to just deal with. Yeah. I think conservators are generally a bit more sort of... Um, neurotic is that yeah. unkind <laughs> about having to deal with this um, and would usually rather do nothing mm. than take a risk yeah i would say yeah i mean i think again a young conservator 
might be more worried because there's a lot more to lose not with the, the object but your career yes <laughs> um, and, and people towards the end of their career tend not to take risks because they mm-hmm. just see so much so many more things that could go wrong yeah and and probably have not been working at a level where you can muster up the memory you know the tacit memory of how to do this thing mm. without thinking about it so the minute more the minute you start to have to think about it again you can see the risks and you tend not to do so much so it's the so mid career people so mid career people <laughs> ought to be doing all the stuff and ought to be taking risks and winning most of the time or getting it right most of the time yes because that's the flip side yeah. of course is that you might gain yeah you don't have to lose <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, the danger, as I see it, and it can only be seen as a risk, is that as people drop up at the top end, there's a group of people, the the young and ambitious people will become heads of section, heads of department, dynamic people in Mm. the profession, not encouraging people Mm. to do stuff or to take any risks. And therefore you find yourself in a department or in a section where nobody does anything and they say you've got no well, no mentors no no role models no nothing that you can see going on you think well I can do that or I can do better than that because if nobody's doing anything then it's quite easy to feel I don't even know how to be better than doing nothing really. I suppose one of the problems as well is that a lot of conservation is quite untested mm. so it's not like being a cardiac surgeon (laughs) where there are very well developed standard procedures for operations and you can learn under another surgeon and just work on doing the same procedure over and over and over until you've got it nailed and eventually you'll teach the next generation Mm. i mean really each conservation treatment is potentially unique and sometimes we come up against problems where we're wanting to use new um, methods and materials that haven't been tested anywhere yeah i mean that, that's the other thing about um the ethics of conservation I mean, one of the principles that we've been toying with is this whole idea that you should only use tested materials or well-known approaches which you cut in a, somebody at some stage yes. to say <laughs> you know some of the vigorous promoters of nothing are I think all the mistakes we made and there's it's probably difficult to find too much except in art watch written about mistakes that have been made because the conservatives themselves are not going to publish that but Mm. there's a temptation to say oh I remember we used to do that and that turned out to be a terrible mistake but then people don't you know you you don't get a feel for how frequent that was what proportion of that of things that was I mean that unwillingness to report negative results is is a big problem for Mm. scientific research generally Um, I know when I was a student, this ghastly spectre of soluble nylon was kind of used to frighten us into being cautious about our choice Mm. of material. Yeah, no, that's an an interesting one because I can remember paper conservators coming to me and saying, this this material we've been using now for quite a long time has been found to be not a good thing. What should we do? Try and dissolve it all away before it gets rock hard. And my view was that you've used it to lay down flakes of paint on something. Mm. You're hoping the flake won't come off. It's not going to, now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, 
I suppose that's one way to look at it. <laughs> the likelihood of wanting to, uh, of you having made such a cobbler of the whole thing and wanting to remove it is very, very slight. And, and even if it were perfectly soluble, the chances of reversing it with a friable surface is, is without further damage, is slight anyway. So Right. You don't learn. You, you know, you can't know everything. <laughs> First of all, that's a that's a really nice interview. I do I do like a bit about data versus uncertainty. Like that's a mm-hmm. this comes down to we don't actually share data. If we have data, we don't share it. Yeah, I think we don't we don't share data, but I think we also don't collect a lot of data, and we don't necessarily have very good quality data. Yeah, and um, I, I I do think that a lot of the data that we do collect doesn't end up being deposited into any kind of database. It stays in our heads, where it's it, it is what we base our decisions on, but it doesn't really get written down. And if it does get written down, it doesn't get written down in a way that's easily shareable and comparable. So it's it's really difficult to get an overview of why people are making these decisions. But uh, mm. I, I like that it came up. I was surprised by um, his describing of the attitude then ethics got in the way. He was implying that was the older generation of conservative feeling that way. Yeah. So I think that's what I, that's what I mean. I think it's interesting that that there's this sort of this feeling of this is what we used to do. Oh, and now there's ethics now. And that's a new thing that's come along. And you know, I, I'm amazed because I never thought but of... It, I, I have had that kind of thing expressed to me in talking to a conservative who go unnamed, uh, who was... <laughs> who, I mean, it did, didn't seem that long ago, but they, they were educated in the 90s. Oh. And they very much... Like, early 90s. And they very much felt like... Now we we don't Squashed really washed by ethics. We don't intervene as much. Uh, was the kind of uh, <laughs> it's not fun the, anymore? Yeah, the, but they did express that maybe we don't get involved as much. Mm, like mm-hmm. we we don't get greasy as much as we used to. And it's like, oh, but, but what is what is it specifically that you think that we don't do that mm. you think we should be doing? Mm. But then they didn't really have a way of expressing that. I mean, if you're taking the really long view of conservation over the last hundred years, say, where mm. what what people were doing might not even qualify to be called conservation in the modern sense but i mean there's there has been a change in in thinking that what conservators do is intervening with objects in some way yeah to thinking that what we are doing is preserving significance or whatever you know managing change all of these different ways of describing it that don't even mention interventive treatment and then there's been this whole idea of preventive conservation which Mm. as a field is still relatively new in things and by definition involves looking after objects in a way that isn't doing things directly to them so i can i can kind of see how this whole kind of ethical landscape might seem kind of new and strange to people who thought that their job was to restore things i can see how it must be a real gear shift from how we used to be but that being said i I don't feel like i'm restricted in what i do just because i have to consider ethics if someone said stop considering ethics i'd feel extremely uncomfortable but if that would make you feel uncomfortable that suggests that there are things that there are ways in which that changes your practice, in which it stops you from doing some things or makes you do other things that you wouldn't do without considering. Maybe it's a, an anxiety overthinking thing, but I can always think of a reason why I shouldn't do everything. And I don't that I don't mean to say that I allow my anxiety to entirely lead what I do and don't do about objects, but I can always think of a reason why I can't. Like, oh, this is this, why I couldn't like undo this repair or you know stick this back together in my mind there's always a reason but I make I choose the ones that I feel are most likely or that I feel are most relevant 
I, I mean, I have previously worked on a large collection of Greek ceramics and some of those had been previously restored in the mid-19th century and then in the 1880s they were sent to the British Museum to be re-restored, reconserved using what was then the kind of state-of-the-art treatments and so on and what they essentially did was file down all of the break edges of the sherds to make these sorts of v-shaped channels along all the breaks which they could then fill with plaster to make an absolutely nice smooth break and then they not only painted the fills they painted over the surface over the original surface as the object as well and what they ended up with was near invisible restoration you yeah there are there are areas where genuinely you would it's been done so skillfully you would not know that these areas were broken they've managed to match the original slip so well that you wouldn't know it was there unless you looked at it under uv for example so from their point of view yeah they've done a fantastic top-notch job of restoring these things and they look absolutely amazing and i was faced with this decision of what do i do you know if i undo any of these things i know i cannot do a job that's going to result in as good final appearance for the object i'm going to be always going to make it look look more broken worse yeah absolutely and in Mm. some ways it's going to look worse because i am prevented i am being hindered from what i can do because i know i can't (laughs) it was okay for them to go and just overpaint the original surfaces either side of the breakage to blend it in and make it look smooth and unbroken but i can't do that yeah. I, I feel like it is It is in some ways making me do a different job from what I could do otherwise. And possibly some people might think a worse job, depending on what you think your job is to do, you know? It, it is a really good point because I, I was talking to a ceramics conservator the other day, actually, and she'd retired. And she was saying mm. that she used to work a lot for um, auction houses and stuff like that who want a very mm. different level of restoration because they wanted essentially to look pristine. She did express that it was a difficult job as a conservator because they did have to kind of say that they offered two services. It was conservation or restoration mm. and mm. Um, that they are different jobs with different results. And that that can be a very tricky thing to kind of a manage other people's expectations mm-hmm. because they they often want restoration, not conservation. Basically, that it was a difficult job to do because of these different uh, views of what's a good job and what's a skillful job, and all of these things. And I, it is a really interesting point, and it, it is something that you you do you do get when you mm. when you work commercially. Mm. Certainly, that's what I was thinking as well. That that it's the sort of the changing priorities things that that Jonathan mentioned. The the when we're working in museums our attitude can be so affected by the the opinion of the curator or the director. For example, if the director mm. or the curator says, oh, no, I think they, they should look old, or whether the director or curator says it, it needs to look, care, you know, mm. conserved or restored or something. So that changes it hugely. And I'm sure there's there must be freelancers out there listening now thinking... I'm sorry, I I just have to do what the client tells me to do because no, but, they're okay. the owner of the object. Yeah, but, and but, but this is where it needs to be a dialogue. So it, of it, course, it yeah. is all about that. And ultimately, if some old lady, you know, like wants it looking pristine, yeah, then then that is the job. Yeah, that is the job, and it, it's up to you whether you're comfortable or not to take that job. Mm-hmm. But that is the job. And that's not necessarily applicable when you're working for a museum client or Mm. like it is all about these different groups that have different expectations and you do need to manage that. And 
but sometimes it is the job <laughs> yeah that we we have to consider or we have to uh, manage expectations as you said quite a lot in our uh, when yeah. we do outside contracts in my museum that we have to say we have to highlight the difference between conservation and restoration and we only do conservation because of these reasons and this is what that means for what we can achieve with this object and this is what this means for how you can use the object but I, I also think that these different kinds of uh, ways of doing it, they, they can both be, be valid. I mean, I found the example that you gave Christina to be quite difficult to stomach because it's it's so different from anything that would be done now. You did, yeah, same. It was, yeah. uh, you were unable to see my face because it's yeah, an we audio, audio medium. But, but, you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't a great, great moment for my face. <laughs> but I mean, for all I know, there are restorers doing that kind of thing now, possibly. There could because, be. You know, like like you said, this I, I'm fascinated by this idea of offering a conservation service and a restoration service and accepting that there might be things that you wouldn't do as a conservator that you do do when you've got your restorer's hat on. Yeah, it's one of many things that are interesting about conservation as a profession and a developing profession. Even though conservation and restoration have both been around for a very long time, they've not necessarily been recognised jobs in the way that we think of them mm-hmm. now etc so it, it, it's all a development and these are still growing pains i think that we're trying to figure out mm. how we stand on these different uh, topics and that's why it's so good to talk about them and why i look forward to people having opinions when they listen to this i, I, I can't wait to hear what people think about these things it, it's going to be great and uh, uh, yeah i'd really love to hear when people have decided not to do something and why yeah, exactly. And, and like people have felt that they can't do something or won't do something or yeah, exactly. shouldn't do something. I suppose that's it, isn't it? It's, it's can't, won't or shouldn't. There are kind of different reasons. For yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And no I think skill levels. level and, and expertise does have a big difference because I suppose if... I'm sure there were people working at the time using that same ceramic conservation method but doing it badly and... If the result is really poor, then you've not only damaged the object, but you've also created something that actually doesn't look as it was intended to look at all. So I was really struck by Jonathan's suggestion that early career conservators shouldn't do things because they don't yet maybe have the skills to do yeah. full range of things and the experience and so on and that people at the end of their career sometimes won't choose will choose not to do things because they're more conscious yeah. of all the times it could go wrong and so on and basically he was saying it was the mid-career conservators who should do the stuff yeah like they were the, they should be the biggest risk takers I, yeah unexpected how do you get to be a mid-career conservator with mid-career skills if you don't start off as an early career conservator doing early career well that's the conundrum yeah. isn't it you know the only way you get that those skills and experiences by doing it and risking cocking it up and getting it wrong sometimes mm. yeah and i mean i'm sure we have all gotten it wrong at some point oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah Yes, yes, we all have. So don't feel bad out there. I Everyone think it's the practicing thing, isn't it? I'm gonna well, just yeah. I'm gonna poke this bit in just as a little positive thing for anyone sitting there thinking, but I don't know this. Practice on stuff from charity shops that doesn't matter. I know it's time and effort, but you know, one of the things on my to do list is get some old photographs from a charity. Though that makes me feel really uncomfortable because old photographs are important, even if they have been just given away. Anyway. And test stuff. Going to smash some ceramics at home at some point and basically stick them back together until I can do it properly. Yeah. All of that. Do that. It's fun. It's a good way to spend time and it will help you with your career. 
another thing was that he did mention priorities and why we might prioritize things. And I kind of want to take that discussion into into the group here and mm-hmm. talk about what makes something a priority. Like, what are the different things that allows you to work on an object? Because we've already kind of talked about, oh, it's picked for exhibition, we have to do it. Mm. Which I think is a valid one and that one that loads of people will recognize as a kind of pressure point when we're suddenly allowed to work on something. Yeah, I'm really interested in that because we've got a priority list of banners to conserve. Okay, so that there are is that influenced by when they go on display or is this kind of influenced off? by the previous director of the museum who selected from his knowledge of the subject. Okay. Selected ones that were particularly interesting. So they're based kind of on perceived value. Perceived value and perceived importance. Does condition feed into that at all? Um, I mean, like it's not the ones in most urgent need. No, of conservation they're because all of their ones. Condition. They're all ones that can't be displayed without significant intervention. But they're not the ones that, like, the if you were to list all of the ones or list them in mm. in condition they're not included then they're, they're not sort of that, that's not really factor into it uh, there are things in bits that aren't on the priority list because they're not perceived their their sort of historic value is not perceived as i suppose as significant in the one of the as the ones on the priority list but that's a bit the reason i bring it up is because that's a bit of a i feel that's a bit of a shame because we now do things differently we now um develop displays and develop exhibitions differently to the way that it was done before we're not necessarily conserving we're not necessarily displaying i should say the ones that are um most important we're displaying ones that are thematic and relevant to various topics Mm. and and programs that we're doing in the museum and also that was one person's perceived notion of importance now that's not to say that that's not relevant because i'm sure they knew their stuff right yeah however uh, this this does kind of bring in the kind of interesting stuff that's coming up as part of you know democratizing our museums mm-hmm. and yeah. stuff that it's not all about well some old dude <laughs> thought this was important so it is yeah it's, it's about more it. types of yeah. values than that and interestingly um, we are bringing in more audiences so we're doing a a, a, a year on migration next year for example oh, fantastic. and i know the the whole point of that essentially is to say this is what we thought about this object mm. what do you think about this object and what do you what object do you think is the most important thing that sig- that signifies various yeah. it speaks to you in this certain way mm. so we are getting essentially a whole new range of priorities yeah I mean, frankly, if they're the ones that are in bits there isn't time anyway so it doesn't matter <laughs> but we could find other ways to display them I guess <laughs> I feel that there are sort of two things, though, driving choice of objects for conservation. And one of them is this sort of need to use the object in some way, whether that's for display or research or teaching or whatever. And you said, Chloe, you know, they can't go on display without conservation. Well, I mean, they could, but obviously people feel that things need to be in a certain state of repair before well, they can yeah go but out also if that or... yeah large painted textiles you'd need like a 4 meter square plinth and like a raised dais that people could look down on it from and it would be like this massive yeah. faff you couldn't do it <laughs> yeah okay but all i'm saying is that you well, know that, that's one of the it. reasons <laughs> that's one of the reasons why things are prioritized for conservation is because yeah. we 
want to use them yeah, yeah. and so the conservation's in the service of making them usable but the other reason is a more kind of intrinsic conservation reason which is to do with condition and stability in fact to do mm-hmm. with stability rather than condition because things could be in terrible condition like your textiles in fragments which might not need conservation because they can stay like that for the next 50 years probably not changing very yeah much. well everything that's rolled is fine yeah exactly and there might be something that's more complete but it's unstable and so is actually more in need of conservation even though in some ways it's in better condition Mm, and i think that that's our other kind of reason for prioritizing things isn't it is to do with condition and stability and the need to do to conserve something now rather than in 20 years time that's it it will be in pieces in 20 years time and there aren't very many things that fall into that kind of category i would say Okay, so from that topic, I was curious what you all feel about when to, and this sounds like we're talking about medicine now, when to stop treatment. Oh God, palliative care. Yeah, oh, man. yeah. Or, or indeed, when when to just say no, we can't do anything. Like, how do people End feel about life. that? Yeah. Well, because things, I was asked this by someone who wasn't a museum person recently, because that's something they were really interested mm. in. Do you do you ever say no? Or is, it, is there a point where you can save the patient? Yes. And I've been in a museum that has deaccessioned things because they had gone too far and they were untreatable. And in some cases, there were some furs that were so badly pest damaged that we took the decision to deaccession them or the curator did because they just couldn't be used anymore and they were too far gone to be conserved yeah so i'm of the opinion that there are definitely times when it's completely valid so they were kind of euthanized <laughs> yeah no but seriously though sometimes knowing not to is also when to say no we can't do anything yeah well there are objects where you've sort of well ethically again ethically you have to let something just die like something's um, designed military colors if they've been laid to rest then you're not yeah you're not supposed to and various world objects from world cultures where it's actually the whole point of this object is to decompose and it was taken out of its kind of home culture and you know prodded and poked and cleaned and preserved and blah 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 and that's actually against and that's actually what, against yeah. the whole mm-hmm. point of the object yeah. yeah some things have a natural life yeah. cycle yeah, yeah exactly or an intended life cycle intended, we should probably yeah. say yeah i do feel that there's value in displaying things that are really far gone if you could if one could justify keeping something that was you know so far beyond repairable or displayable or something that you it could no longer signify what it is and it begins to then signify the deterioration there is value in that i feel that there is you could put on a display yeah because i feel like objects that were essentially decaying away because that's the purpose of the object yeah i think you you could because that's a conversation starter isn't it yeah exactly like you know especially things with plastics and stuff like that oh yes it's it's quite a dramatic change (laughs) and this is the tray that we use to catch the drips of the object (laughs) oh god oh (laughs) dear jane I'm a recently graduated conservator and I'm looking for employment. I've put out several applications and have two interviews lined up. Meanwhile, I have just been offered a one-year paid internship with a major museum working with my dream collection. Do I risk turning down the internship to try for the permanent job? My training has cost a lot and I wonder if I should put job security first. M. Dear M. 
First of all, congratulations. You've recently graduated and you already have the dilemma of choice between, well, what looks like a couple of good options. So congratulations, you must have done well. And it does seem like a tremendous chase when you're young, but make sure you take time to congratulate yourself, pat yourself on the back and think, okay, I've done a lot of work, but I've got somewhere. So that is the substance of your question, what to do. Is a bird in hand worth two in the bush? And the traditional wisdom is that the bird in hand is always worth two in the bush. In other words, that the thing that you have is worth two of the thing that you haven't got. And I personally have to go along with that. Um, you're young. I hope you're able to move around. I don't know. I shall, sorry, I don't know you're young. You've said that you recently graduated. I don't know what your caring responsibilities are. I know you have to offset the debts that you'll have accumulated as a student. But I would say that if you are in a position to be flexible at the beginning of the career, you should try to do jobs which interest and stimulate you and which build your career and give you opportunities. Because I think that will be the most lucrative for the balance of your life and for the balance of your finances in the long term. My own feeling is conservation is quite a small world. So if you turn down an internship, you need to think about the consequences. Who are you turning down? Will you meet them again? How will they respond to it? Would they completely understand? <clears throat> I think if you've got a job offer on the table, then you simply evaluate the two in terms of which take you forward further in life. But remember, internships sometimes come with opportunities, and I haven't seen yours, but does it have an opportunity to travel, present at conferences, do research, to work with people or objects that you might not get a chance to work with in another context? I know many internships do do that. And you've also got to ask if you can afford to take the internship, because I don't know your finances, where you are when you're staying. My gut instinct, though, M, is if you can afford to take the internship and if it really is your dream collection, then a one year is a good enough start on a conservation career. And if you've been offered interviews after just your training, then I'm sure you'll be offered interviews again after your training and your internship. What I would do is take time to write to the people who've offered you an interview and explain your decision even try and make something positive out of it. Um, ask them if they'd like you to do a, a talk or if they would like to come on a studio tour or whether you could come back to them and talk about your experiences or if they've got an outreach or a STEM kind of event. Just try to make a positive out of it. And whatever you decide to do, I hope you enjoy it and I hope it takes you a step in the right direction. Sometimes I think there's so much pressure on new conservators to know where they're going. And I'm not sure us older conservators did know where we were going when we started. I'm pretty sure most of us just blundered forward. But I don't think we were under the same kind of pressure that you are today starting out in the career. And I'm not sure that that pressure is good. I, I just, um, I keep saying the same. Go with your passion, go with your heart, go with your dreams. If it seems like the right thing to do, then do it and let the consequences work themselves out. I hope that's helpful. And as ever, if you want to let the SeaWorld know how it went, then get back to us and let us know. Over and out. If you're enjoying the SeaWorld and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. 
We've crunched the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Welcome to our latest patron, Marcus. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about side hustle. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at The C Word Podcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I can't remember the details. Do you want me to Google? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, so, pause for Googling. <laughs> you sound like you're playing Minecraft. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Does it? I, nice. I don't know what you can They're hear nice. from me doing this. And the <laughs> is it like tap 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 tap? Yeah, chomp yeah, yeah. chomp 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 chomp. It's the Minecraft noise. <laughs>